Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Sardanya, who's an anthropologist, family physician in training, and mother of two who lives in New Haven, Connecticut, where she advocates for racial justice and health equity. And we'll hear more about that and about her book, Pressing Onward, The Imperative Resilience of Latina Migrant Mothers, published recently by the University of California Press. So thank you very much, Jess, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Eliza. So to start off, can you tell us about your background as an anthropologist, physician, and activist? And that's quite a trio, so I'm so excited <laughs> to hear about that. And maybe you could also tell us about how this background led you to writing this book. Absolutely. So so yes, so I call myself a medical anthropologist, a family physician, and an activist. I trained at the Yale School of Medicine in the Medical Scientist Training Program, which is a federally funded program designed to combine research and clinical medicine to produce physician scientists. And many MD-PhDs are we jokingly call ourselves mud buds, uh, <laughs> their PhDs in bench science in fields like microbiology or neuroscience or immunology. But I completed my PhD in medical anthropology, and that's a little bit of a less traditional field for the MSTP, but it makes a lot of sense to me going into medicine where we need to understand people in the broad social worlds in which they experience their health conditions, um, their their experience of illness. And um, it was as I was kind of approaching what I wanted to do, I was thinking about, well, we have a lot of, you know, health advantages. We also have a lot of health inequalities and health disadvantages. And a lot of those are shaped by social and political forces. And to me, it made a lot of sense to, to study medical anthropology and particularly family medicine, because in family medicine, we don't just consider one organ. We don't just look at the liver. We don't just look at the retina. We think about whole bodies and whole people in their family networks, in their social networks, and kind of in their broader social ecologies. I also call myself an activist because I see scholarship and clinical practice as just tools to achieve my broader vision of health justice. Other tools can be policy advocacy, community organizing, direct action. And at the start of med school, I didn't know medicine. I 
didn't even consider myself a scholar or an expert in anything. Um, so I fell more into local activist spaces. And I started medical school in 2014. I had just done my undergrad in St. Louis. And that was literally right after Mike Brown in Ferguson had been murdered by the Ferguson police. And so I was really entering medical school in this time of real consciousness around issues of racial justice. And so I was really involved in a lot of movements around racial justice, worker rights, immigrant rights, um, kind of resisting these different forms of oppression. And I was doing that in a new space that I encountered had a lot of parallels to my home community, to the community that I'd been in in St. Louis, where I was noticing patterns of segregation, of things being shaped by migration, and recognizing how policies, how community networks shaped the different experiences that people had, including the people I was encountering in the clinic. And the research that drove this book grew out of my clinical work that I was doing at a student-run free clinic in the predominantly Latinx neighborhood in New Haven. So I was working as a behavioral health psychoeducator in this program that we had designed for patients who screened positive for mild to moderate depressive symptoms. And we had created this with the idea being that these patients wouldn't necessarily qualify for the real high acuity programs that were designed for people who maybe were experiencing suicidality or such severe symptoms that they were not able to function at all, but they really were experiencing symptoms that were impacting their lives and they needed help. And we designed this program that was adapted from kind of a community health worker promotor program that incorporated principles of cognitive behavioral therapy and focused on understanding the migrant experience and building coping strategies. And so I met with a lot of parents um, in these one-on-one -on -one sessions and particularly mothers who were worried about how their traumas people had experienced things like political violence, intimate partner violence. And especially these moms were worried about how these traumas were affecting their kids. And so this got me thinking about intergenerational trauma. And that was originally the focus of this book. I was thinking that I wanted to study how women particularly were incorporating these traumas, how that affected their bodies, their life courses, um, and how that affected their pregnancies, their babies, and kind of their attitudes toward motherhood. And I was curious, you know, I was really thinking that it might have these, these harms. And a lot of the literature on intergenerational trauma at the time that I was entering this work was really this cycle of blame, um, saying like, oh, you know, you experience this trauma, you become a bad parent. And I was kind of seeing like, well, maybe there's more going on there. And the interesting thing that I found that these women told me was so, so different. It really wasn't about how these traumas negatively impacted their experiences, but really how these traumas shape their entire attitudes, cause women to be very, very future thinking. And develop, have them develop these really ongoing coping strategies, these cognitive and social strategies so that they're in this mode of resistance and really orient themselves toward a vision of the future for themselves and for their children. Yeah, that, 
I mean, thanks so much for taking us through all this careful work and the intergenerational aspect of your work really, really comes across. I especially appreciated how you attend to resilience as something that is produced as an imperative, but also as an intergenerational imperative. And, you know, that is captured in one of your um, main themes called imperative resilience. So I'm curious about how you would define this term and how you link it with um, the resilience of monarch butterflies. So thank you so much for bringing that up. I, it's so funny, you know, the, the image of the monarch butterfly initially was just kind of something that I had thrown in there just as something that I had liked. Um, I had read Ocean Vong's um, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous and Ocean Vong had actually, it was a memoir and he had lived in Hartford, Connecticut. So I was like, oh, there's a parallel here. You know, the, the metaphor that he uses speaks about the migration experience and the sacrifices that migrant parents make to be able to speak speak about, you know, the long migration that migrant butterflies make and how they leave behind things. And then, you know, their, their descendants um, basically, you know, have this, this work of trying to recapture, you know, the, the things that their parents have left behind. And um, that, that image was, was initially appealing to me. And I realized that it it spoke about so much more um, because, Migrant butterflies, monarch butterflies really do have so many parallels to this experience. And, you know, when I was developing this idea to kind of speak to what these women were telling me about imperative resilience, I realized that there were, there were a lot more parallels. So let me kind of explain a little bit more about what imperative resilience means in this context. So basically there's this idea of resilience in public health, in mental health, in social science that kind of talks about a mode of positive functioning in the presence of stress. So basically you you have a considerable stressor, adversity, trauma, and you look for these mental health symptoms and they're either fewer symptoms or no symptoms. And so it's almost like, oh, wow, you know, resilience, that's a good thing. We got to have more of that. We got to cultivate that. We got to build that up. We got to identify, classify, characterize it. And we, we need to kind of optimize it to be able to buffer against trauma and all this, you know, this bad stuff that can happen in the world. And what I learned from these women based on their experience is that for them, women, for them, resilience is not any one trait or any combination of traits. It is a necessary mode of resistance to the multiple forms of oppression they are facing in the day-to-day. So this has to do with the the legacies and the repercussions of the migration-related trauma, this ongoing fear of deportation, racism, sexism, economic oppression. And at the time that I was interviewing them at the height of the COVID pandemic, this fear of illness and death and and financial fallout um, when they were losing work and seeing their loved ones die around them. And despite all this, they have to have a way to get by because what are what is the alternative? The alternative is that they don't eat, their children don't eat, they 
are evicted. They may have their children taken away from them for neglect or abuse. They could be incarcerated. They could be deported. They could have such a psychological or psychiatric breakdown that they are hospitalized against their will. So there really is such little margin for error that they have to engage some form of being able to focus on their goals, to keep their eyes on the prize. And so what that looks like is sometimes it is avoidance. Sometimes it's like, I can't think about these bad things in my life. Or sometimes it's such a deeply held faith that God is looking out for me. God has a plan. I'm going to pray. I'm going to sing. And that is going to help me get through. Sometimes it is a, a sincere focus on the well-being of the children and being able to see joy where others might not be able to see it. Um, sometimes it is channeling this truly held belief in this kind of wisdom and encouragement from their mothers, their grandmothers who said, you can do this, you are made for this. And, and being able to harness that and get have that kind of carry through these really difficult moments. And sometimes it's being like really problem solving, really strategic being like, okay, you know, like I am entertaining these different kind of potential partnerships, but this person can connect me with different social networks. This person has, you know, has citizenship. This person has more financial resources. And, you know, I'm going to strategically kind of connect myself to be able to latch on to who's going to be able to advance my family's goals. Um, Or, you know, being really, really smart about finances and thinking like, okay, you know, I don't have enough you know, money to make the rent this month or to pay the electric bill. So I'm going to need to side hustle and I'm going to need to, you know, sell some, some empanadas on the side, like whatever the case may be. Um, And so, you know, thinking about what imperative resilience means, it's not just like, oh, these women are doing so great. Like they have very few symptoms. It's like, no, this is, this is necessary. This is, this is not this like idealized, like academic version of resilience. This is like a very practical process that women are engaging in to be able to, to get through this really harsh reality that they're encountering every single day. And I think it's important to point out that I believe that imperative resilience is not this kind of like exceptional, like, wow, you know, I think that imperative resilience happens a lot more commonplace than we might, might, you know, consider. And I think that, you know, single moms do this all the time. Um, Poor people do this. Many students do this in certain moments. And it's basically when you lack some kind of safety net that allows you to fully acknowledge and process and confront the psychological and emotional impact of the many forms of stress and violence that you might be facing, this, this kind of tactic becomes necessary. And for the women in this book, their visions for the futures of their family keep them going, keep them with their eyes on the prize saying like, you know, we, we gotta, gotta push forward. And, um, going back to this image of the monarch butterfly. So these monarchs do this like wildly incredible thing where like they, you know, the, the milkweed, you know, dries up, they can't like, you know, feed enough, um, where they are in, in the United States and in Canada. And so they're like, Oh, time to migrate. And they embark on this like 4,000 mile journey, um, to be able to get to these forests in Mexico where they can be able to nourish themselves. And then that generation, 
that's the conclusion of their life. And then it is, you know, three or four generations that return back to, you know, the the more Northern territories. And if you think about the different kind of adversities that we can say that they face, it is, you know, really inhospitable weather. Um, it is just the, this huge journey and the, the endurance that it takes. You mean, you think about these like tiny little butterflies, like flying at the, you know, altitudes that like planes do it's, it's really kind of wild. And, um, and, you know, thinking about that kind of idea of, of generational loss and this, you know, but, but thinking about this broader goal and this vision for the future of their generations, because if they don't go there and lay their eggs, um, then they're not going to be able to preserve the future of their entire lineage, their entire species. And the monarch is especially salient because we have them in Connecticut. Like we see them all the time. And when it's migration season, it's like the most beautiful thing. Like people really pay attention to the monarchs and children build these monarch way stations in, in New Haven, in, especially in Fairhaven, which is, as I mentioned, this um, predominantly Latinx neighborhood where I, a lot of the pe- women who I did my field work with, you know, live. And it's, it's so cool to kind of, you know, be able to see this connection. So it's a symbol that's both global. And I hope that people can kind of, you know, see that and, and it has some resonance there, but it's also very, very local. Absolutely. And it's such an evocative metaphor. And I love how throughout the book, you straddle this, not fine line, but this great balance between recognizing people's agency, but also recognizing all these structures that are making that agency imperative. And my next question is about that. So to understand broader migration patterns, you do this very important and necessary move beyond pull-push factors and center on structured choices people make as they cross borders. So I'm curious to hear how you locate agency in cross-border mobility, especially as it intersects with motherhood. I love that question. I think it's so important. (laughs) And it's funny because, you know, people like love to ask this question. It's like, well, why do people migrate? And there's no one simple explanation because it's so individual. You can speak about these these broader forces that go on in people's lives, but it it becomes to the point where it affects someone at an individual level that ultimately spurs that choice. And so, you know, the, the one image that I think can be helpful is thinking about things as like battery poles or, or chargers. So there can be these, these, you know, the, the charge can be there. So that can be economic oppression to the point where, you know, you're having trouble making ends meet that can be violence in your community. Um, but those things individually, those things alone are not enough to make someone migrate. Someone can live with violence in their community, in their city for years, and that cannot be enough to migrate. Someone can live in that community their entire life, and it's it's never going to get them to the point saying, I need to leave. But it's when that violence comes to your doorstep, when you have an immediate family member who's murdered, when there are gunshots in your backyard, when a bullet is is literally missing your head by inches that's when that point gets to you and you're thinking wow i i really got to make a change um and for you know so for many women these were conscious decisions where they were thinking about you know talking about intersecting with motherhood it could be my government isn't protecting me enough women made decisions where they 
were trying to seek out healthcare for a child. And even in countries where they were supposed to have universal healthcare or some form of social, a, a public healthcare, their child had a, had a complication and they were not able to get the care that they needed. So that was enough for them to decide to cross the border. Um, for some women, it was a case of, of violence, whether it was you know kind of gang-related violence, drug-related violence, or sexual violence. And for some of these women, you know, they were thinking about, I couldn't imagine if that were to happen to someone else in my family. It's one thing for me to go through it, but I couldn't imagine if someone else in my family went through it. And for other women, you know, the case of economic oppression, it's thinking about, well, sure, I can, you know, I'm a, I have a degree, I have the training, I'm working all these hours, but I'm not spending that time with my child. So what kind of life is this? And, you know, even women who were working as lawyers or working as accountants go to the United States and they're working in housekeeping, but they're happier because they're working different hours. They're getting paid what they feel that they're worth and they're able to spend that time with their family. So these are more calculated decisions that they're making relative to their positions as thinking about themselves within these, these social networks. And I also think it's important to note that, you know, some, some women do, you know, I kind of call this the, the rebellious choice. Um, some women were kind of made these decisions to migrate when they were younger, before they were mothers. And they were just thinking like, well, I want to try it out. I want to see what it's like. And in that case, they, they came to the United States. They weren't necessarily thinking about staying, but maybe they got there, they found a partner, they had a child, and then the calculus changed. Then, you know, their, their values and the, the equation of whether to stay, whether to go back, you know, how they wanted to build a life that ultimately force them to place roots. Um, so the, there are so many variables and it's never just one thing or any set of things. It's when those, those various structural factors converge on the individual to ultimately adjust the way that they're consciously making the decisions that are going to be best for them, for their family and for their future. Yeah, that's such a wonderful way to put it. And you know, in the book, you also take seriously how hospitals, healthcare workers, and NGOs shape migrant Latina mothers' experiences with racism in the U.S. And you know, perhaps that's no surprise because you've been telling us about how this works emerged from your ongoing work as a physician in training. So can you speak more to healthcare as a site that makes resilience imperative? Absolutely. And I really think it's important to consider with respect to the issue of racism, the intersectional experience of being a Latin American migrant mother. So I speak about this in the book in the context of how birthing and the experience of prenatal care and coming to the hospital and having a baby makes Latina mothers or racializes them in a very particular way, because there are these existing pervasive stereotypes about Latino women as hyper-fertile, these unruly bodies that just come to the United States, have a bunch of babies, they're hypersexual, and they're just 
not paying attention to the consequences. They can't afford to have these, these kids and they are, you know, Bennett trying to take advantage of all these welfare services um, that, you know, they just came from their home countries, you know, all poor and greedy and just trying to, you know, mooch off of everything that we have in the United States. And that process of birthing specifically kind of has these women take on these, you know, problematic stereotypes and these images and the the site of healthcare, the site of the clinic, the site of the birthing center, the hospital, et cetera, um, is where a lot of this gets made or assigned to these women. They become very, very specifically socialized and racialized in this way. And it's very, very challenging for a lot of these women who recognize that that's how they're viewed, but they are truly very conscious and deliberate and thoughtful about their reproductive plans and, you know, are not seeking to be these, you know, greedy mooches who are just, you know, having 10 babies and, you know, not have without a plan of how to take care of them. No, the, the women that I spoke to had desired fewer children than, than the average quote, you know, white American U S born woman. Um, many of them actually had a lower rate of unplanned pregnancy. And when I was speaking to them about their, you know, any unplanned pregnancies, a lot of them were related to either abusive partners or failures of contraception. Um, And this is kind of a part of the narrative that is often lost when we kind of try to simplify these, these and flatten these stereotypes in this very kind of racist way. And I think that if you were to talk to many healthcare providers, many healthcare providers are very fancy themselves, fancy ourselves as being very empathetic and kind and generous and giving and self-sacrificial. And no one would want to say like, oh, you know, that was very racist of me. That was very biased of me. Like I am, you know, engaging in these really harmful tropes. But, and, and I will also say that I presented a lot of this work before it was, before it was a dissertation, before it was a book, before, (laughs) before, you know, it took any form to the site where I recruited a lot of these women from. And, you know, highlighted a lot of the discriminatory practices that that the clinic was engaging in and no one refuted it they were very much like oh i see this but it was never like oh i did that i'm sorry it was it was more like a racism without racists it was i can acknowledge that this practice exists but i cannot take ownership of it and i think that that's an important an important awareness for healthcare providers and anyone engaged in social services for migrant communities, particularly migrant mothers, brown migrant mothers, racially minoritized migrant mothers to be aware of is that if you're aware that this racism occurs, it has to be coming from somewhere. And if it's not you, it's a colleague, it's an environment, it's a culture, and someone is responsible for calling it out. If it's, if it's not a cultural norm, it's an institutional norm. It's a political norm. And that needs to be named, that needs to be acted on, and that needs to be reformed. So everyone needs to hold themselves accountable for recognizing, hmm, all right, so 
When this patient called to be admitted to the hospital for their labor, which is a narrative that I talk about in the book, um, and they were complaining about this pain and this bleeding, and they were not admitted right away. But this other patient called, and they were able to be admitted because somebody advocated for them. What was the difference there? Why did that happen? Is there a policy that would make this more equitable? Those are the kinds of things that we can pay attention to and advocate for, to recognize that there are going to be certain patients who are going to be disproportionately impacted by the gaps and the inequities in our policy. And we can try to level the playing field and ensure that we have equitable care and that our, our social practices of, of how racism becomes codified and normalized, that we can seek to remedy that and, and everyone needs to be responsible. Absolutely. And thanks just for reminding us that You know, healthcare is not just a sign site, but a site of agents in which people act. And, you know, I see that kind of call for reflexivity also extending to yourself, especially as you discuss in the book, the complications and limits of categories like Latinx or Latina. So, you know, throughout the book, you discuss these terms historically and ethnographically, but you also weave in your positionality as a Latina mother with indigenous heritage in a very nuanced way, as well as the backgrounds of your research assistants who you acknowledge were doing this work with you, uh, which I think is very unique and important. So in grappling with these categories, what role did positionality play both for you as the author of this book and for the research team that was involved in the process? Thank you so much for asking that. And this is something that was somewhat experimental for me. And I was really trying to challenge myself because I think that positionality and anthropology is something that is a challenging challenging process to engage with in a very thoughtful and responsible way that is moving beyond kind of navel gazing and also kind of you know apologies for white guilt, which I often see in certain ways that that authors do this in an ethnographic way and also trying to claim a certain proximity to interlocutors that may not be real or truthful. And this was something that I really thought a lot about because yes, I had, I had certain parallels with the, with my communities um, because yeah, I'm, I'm a Latina mother. I am Italian Chilean. I, you know, was literally whilst I was speaking with some women who were, you know, kind of trying to settle their babies or their toddlers was settling my baby and my toddler. And so I had a lot of parallels, but I also had to recognize all of the ways that I had this kind of social separation and these, these pieces of, you know, uh, relative advantage and distance um, from my interlocutors. So I had to recognize like, I am, you know, I cannot speak for this community. Um, I am not necessarily of this community. However, I feel that my, my proximity to this community helps me pay attention and attend to certain dimensions of their experience that had I come from a different background might be more difficult for me to attune to. And that I think helped me be especially thoughtful and an especially careful listener. And I also feel that I would have my gaps and, you know, my blind spots and, and areas in which, you know, I would miss out on things. And this is where I invited my research assistants who 
were all Latinx identified, um, except for one who was just a native Spanish speaker or a fluent Spanish speaker. And I said, you know, you all represent different dimensions of this experience and may pick up on things that I miss. And as they were helping me kind of um, read through transcripts, which I also reviewed, I would say, you know, if you feel like you're picking up on something that I'm missing, or if you hear me, you know, I'm doing this interview and you say, oh, there was this thread of conversation that you just totally left open. You know, I want that feedback. And this was a, a, a process of collaborative ethnography that I felt would strengthen the project. And with my research assistants, we had weekly meetings where we would kind of review what everyone could bring to the table and what everyone thought. And one, one contribution that one of my research assistants made that actually led to enriching this whole section about Latinidad was asking how my interlocutors identified racially. Now, this was not something that I was originally planning on doing at all, because this whole race question in, in Latinidad is always very fraught. Um, and I was just like, Oh, I don't know if I want to even go there. It's just going to be like opening a whole can of worms. Um, but this person brought up a really great point, which is like, well, why not open that can of worms? Like, why not see what comes out? And, you know, and as I recognize that in our room of, you know, research assistants and myself, you know, we all represented different racial backgrounds. You know, we had, uh, people who identified as purely indigenous. We had people who identified as, as, Afro-Latino, we had people identified as kind of white indigenous or mestizo or mestiza, um, kind of, you know, mixed. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay. So I think that that also plays a role in how we relate to Latinidad, how we relate to the, the migrant experience, how we kind of see ourselves and how we experience being perceived as Latinx, Latine, Latina, Latino. So I was like, okay, let's, let's try. And that really did kind of bring out this whole idea about racialization, discrimination, you know, to what extent is someone's experience related to their language ability, to what extent is it related to their race? And when it comes to experiences of racism, how do we understand that as a product of phenotype or as a as a product of this category of being a vaguely brown or brownish migrant. Um, so that was a hugely productive contribution of my research, research assistants. And I think that being able to do that and think through that together really enriched this whole, this whole book and my understanding of my interlocutor's experiences. Yeah, personally, as a reader, I would like to extend thanks to your research assistants for pushing you in this <laughs> way and to you for taking that up. And I appreciate your transparency about the twists and turns of this work. Another sort of turn that you took was switching from a biomarker study that you initially intended to carry out to an increased attention to person-centered ethnography. So what caused this shift and what was your approach to person-centered ethnography during a pandemic? Oh, this is so, so great. And I'm so glad you asked this. And I am also 
feel very blessed and grateful for the process and feeling like I could go along with the ride because research rarely goes the way that we expect. And so feeling that we can take these twists and turns and kind of see where it takes us, this book would not be the book that it is had I not kind of embraced what came with it and really kind of leaned into it. So I will say that with this initial idea of being thinking about kind of intergenerational trauma and embodiment and thinking about how it affected women's experiences as well as how it shaped their relationship with their babies. I wanted to do this biomarker study that would have involved looking at epigenetic markers and cortisol levels in saliva, in um, hair, hair samples, um, and also, you know, samples from babies. And, you know, I had started doing my field work in December of 2019. Um, actually, I'd, I'd originally started, you know, preliminary field work the year prior. And so when March of 2020 hit, suddenly I was no longer allowed to collect hair and spit. That would have been quite a biohazard. And so I had to pause, collect my thoughts, figure out what I was going to do. And my options at this point were to essentially come up with kits that I could mail people and ask them to mail back um, or center on people's narratives. And I recognized that the, the cumbersome nature of asking people to do this entire process they were going to be doing themselves, which would not have allowed this kind of back and forth exchange of like why I was, you know, really curious about what, you know, what their, what their hair and spit could tell me <laughs> was not at all what I wanted to do. Um, I did not anyone want anyone to think that I was interested in solely kind of extracting these, these biological materials from their bodies without kind of trying to put that in the context of, of what we were doing together and really kind of have them be a full engaged participant and, and make that a process of, of collaboration together. And it also made me shift to really thinking about what was I trying to do with that? Um, because if I was thinking about, if I was really going with my initial idea of intergenerational trauma, what was I trying to prove? Was I trying to say that their hair and spit could tell me something that their narratives couldn't? Cause I didn't really believe that either. And I felt like I, what really mattered to me was what these women's experiences were. And I also had an entirely new variable, which was <laughs> this pandemic. And it was going to be critically important to me to be able to capture how these women were encountering, experiencing what was going on in this entirely novel global phenomenon that we knew was going to impact people in a totally unevenly, unevenly distributed way. And that this population was going to be challenged very uniquely. Um, so I figured, well, scrap that. <laughs> um, we're going to shift gears and we're going to really center these women's stories. Now, the challenge with doing person-centered ethnography or any type of ethnography when you are forbidden by your research institution from meeting people in person is that you lose that sense of place. And for me, that was both a challenge and less of a challenge because I was already in my place and I knew a lot about 
this area from a lot of the activist work that I'd done, a lot of the clinical work that I'd done, and a lot of my engagement with this community through different avenues. What I missed in that time was how the experience of place and how these social settings transformed in the like heat of the pandemic. Um, and that was challenging, but what the advantage of doing my interviews, which I had to do, had to conduct largely remotely by phone was that I was able to meet people where they were in totally uncontrolled settings. <laughs> so sometimes I was having these conversations, you know, like first thing in the morning where people were, you know, talking with me and getting breakfast ready and having a screaming child in the background or, you know, breaking up a conversation over several hours throughout the day. Uh, and so I really, it wasn't the kind of let's sit in our living room and let's have a nice quiet <laughs> conversation for an hour where, you know, I feel calm, you feel calm. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that. Um, so it really had a little bit of the flavor and chaos of what people were really going through in the moment, because, you know, you can multitask while you're on the phone. You can't really multitask when you have a stranger in your house or, you know, at the cafe <laughs> or whatever. Um, so it really did kind of get me it, it, and it, it required me to, to use, you know, as much of my senses as I could focus in at the time to really think about what else is going on in this moment. And it also, you know, sometimes I would catch people as they were going from the house to the car, to the clinic, um, as they were, you know, going to the, that second, you know, gestational diabetes check, because, you know, they had screened positive on that, on that first, you know, glucose tolerance test and were, you know, worried that they were going to need all these extra interventions. And so, you know, being with them for the anxiety of that, and, you know, kind of that transition from home to the car, to the clinic, you know, and mounting the, the stress of that, you know, and, and being able to company people for through that. And the other piece that I think is important to note is that because I was encountering people during the pandemic, when a lot of people were experiencing this increased financial stress and other social stress is that my role as a, as a carer or kind of stepping outside the bounds of a peer researcher really did shift. Um, you know, I found myself connecting people with a lot of different social services, literally delivering kind of bundles of, of food, um, packages of, you know, masks and hand sanitizer and, you know, other products that I was able to coordinate through different mutual aid organizations or other social services organizations, because I really was encountering people in moments of, of desperation. And that was not something that I could just disregard. And, and because I was finding people in these rather, as I said, kind of chaotic and uncontrolled moments, those details really did come out. Um, and I, I don't think that necessarily would have happened otherwise. Absolutely. And on that note, I want to pick up on something you said in your response. You said that you didn't want to extract these biological materials, but it seems like the books or the project shaped up to be one where you also didn't want to extract narratives. So you've already mentioned some of uh, the work you've done, giving out masks and so on. In the book, there's even more work that you've done, like educating yourself on mental health and you know engaging with public policy and more. And this made me read the book as you know, not so much as an extractive work, but maybe an effort towards reparation or reciprocity. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about reparation or reciprocity as part of your fieldwork and how. 
That is such a great question. And I'm, it's, it's an honor to know that you read it that way, because that's <laughs> something that I, I really strive for. And I don't feel like I have achieved, but I am constantly in the struggle and keep working toward. And so, yeah, those were things that I was constantly conscious of. So the first thing that I thought about was what are women getting from this? Um, so I made sure that with every interview that women did, it was not just a simple kind of token of appreciation, you know, like, like a pen or, you know, a little treat or something like that. Like every woman who, every woman who gave me, who did an interview at minimum received a hundred dollar, um, gift card that they could use at any store. Um, initially I was, I was, pleased because the university allowed me to make these debit cards that they could be redeemed for cash. Um, unfortunately that changed and they had to be these credit cards that could only be redeemed for specific purchases. Um, my preference would be to have people receive cash, but my, <laughs> my lim limitations were placed on me. Um, and then if they did any follow-up interview, they received $50 gift card. And, um, at one point, you know, these gift cards were delayed and I had to come up with a way of making up for that because, you know, if somebody did an interview and I couldn't get a gift card to them for a month later, that was on me. And that I knew that women were in dire financial straits. So I gave them an additional $10 just for the delay. I considered that like interest payment. <laughs> um, and I also, in every interview asked women what they wanted to see come from this and, pretty universally, women said that people need to know our stories. People need to know what's going on and something needs to happen. And a lot of that centered around kind of immigration reform. Like we want to be able to work. We want to be able to, you know, do what we're doing already, but not with this kind of fear. And I saw that as a call to action of trying to leverage their narratives to be able to achieve the kind of change that they were advocating for. So when there were opportunities, so in 2020, there was a, a large kind of awakening for racial justice. There was a, a movements in the city of New Haven to recognize racism as a public health issue. Um, there were also in the succeeding two years, there have been movements to expand the Medicaid in the state of Connecticut toward undocumented immigrants. So in each of these moments, I kind of recognized that, okay, what women are asking for is now being brought to the, the table as an agenda item. And in those different moments, when there was a, a narrative from a woman that I felt was relevant, I would reach out to her and say, this is coming up. I think that your story could be really impactful for a legislator. Would it be okay if I shared this in testimony? And I would, you know, give a little blurb of what I was planning on saying and get her feedback and permission to, to use it. And so I would give testimony um, on these different action items that were that were coming up either in the, the city or in the state. And I plan to keep doing that as much <laughs> as I feel that it can achieve the aims that these women want. And I, I think that that is, that is a way that I can try to carry forward and, and bring forward what I see as the goal of this work. You know, I talked about a broader vision of, of health justice and, you know, when these women want to be able to 
you know, have, have a baby without worrying of going into crushing debt or being able to go to the clinic or the emergency room without going to crushing debt or, you know, um, wanting to be able to call the police on an abusive partner and mm-hmm. not worry about, you know, having there be repercussions for their documentation status. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, they would, they would bring up. And, you know, when there are different policy items that, that come forth, I see it as kind of my responsibility, given what they disclosed in me and the confidence and trust that they placed in me to be able to leverage my cultural capital, my training, uh, and my status, because, you know, now I'm, now I'm a, I'm a family physician. I am an anthropologist. Uh, <laughs> I have two degrees behind my name and, and people pay attention to that. And unfortunately they don't always pay attention to, you know, to someone who doesn't speak English, um, who's poor, who, you know, has, has more challenges, you know, getting, getting someone to pass them the mic. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to use that as the the call to action, as I see it, as they, you know, invested in me to be able to affect the changes that they they've asked for. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing all that with us. And you now as we come closer to the end of our conversation, I also want to ask you about the silent actor in all of this, which is Yale. You know, the book is very much centered in New Haven. And you directly address in the book that even though you try to rope Yale in to collaborate in all this work that you've been doing, often um, those efforts were rejected. But on the other hand, you know, you are affiliated with Yale. They have in many ways supported um, your work in the shape of a project, let's say. And, you know, you have this position as someone who will be listened to and you have all these titles now and so on. So, you know, I'm curious about how you navigated your affiliation with Yale Um but also the absence of Yale in all this work? That's a really important question. And I think that I am perhaps a little bit bolder in naming an institution. You know, I've read similar ethnographies where, you know, it'll say ABC University. And it's like, we all know who the <laughs> university is, but we're just not naming it. And I kind of felt like there was no way to tell the story about, you know, migrants in Southern Connecticut, particularly if I wanted to say I was talking about New Haven without saying that it was Yale, it's going to be obvious. <laughs> and, and I feel like it's also important to speak truth to power. And I don't think it's a secret that there is animosity between the city of New Haven and Yale. It goes back to its founding. And I think that it's, it's these tensions have always been bubbling and there, there are different times where it's boiled over. And with respect to how it affected my field work, it was unavoidable. I would really kind of be working with different community organizations, or I'd be kind of doing these oral history interviews, and I would recognize an opportunity for collaboration or partnership. And the response was very much either we tried, Yale's not interested, or no thanks, or Mm -hmm. Yale's only interested in itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was frustrating and disappointing. And I jokingly call myself a bit of a Robin Hood. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going <laughs> to I'm, I'm going to, you know, take advantage of the resources that I have access to at Yale or whatever institution I am, you know, affiliated with and 
channel them to the people who cannot access them because I think it's a a gross inequity and injustice that somebody like me by virtue of having a title or a degree can, you know, apply for a privately funded grant that's only available to, you know, Yale affiliates or whatever um, that would benefit people in the community. And it would, you know, and then they can't access it directly. And at the same time, you know, I also encounter my own frustrations where, you know, I would have, you know, my own grant funding that had been approved for community events that were specifically to benefit my interlocutors. And there was gatekeeping on part of Yale saying that, you know, you can't do that to directly benefit your interlocutors. It needs to be processed through this other way, or that seems like too much of a gift or things like that. Whereas, you know, you spoke about kind of reparation and reciprocity. That was how I viewed it. And that was how my funders viewed it. And so, you know, I, I think that there's reason, there's very good reason why people in the community feel this way um, because it does seem like Yale is hoarding resources for itself. You know, Yale is is tax exempt. Um, it has, you know, people in the students, kids in the public schools will literally see these like beautiful buildings and say like, oh, that's not for me. Like I am not meant for that. Um, you know, I, I go here and, and avoid it and feel like it's not for them. And I think that that kind of separation and exclusion, you know, really affects the, what people believe that their potential is and what they believe is their home. And um, I think that that can be really detrimental and harmful. And this is not just Yale. I mean, it's true of many, many urban universities in particular, but many universities that embed themselves in communities and take advantage of the different resources, the, the land, um, they, they really kind of, encroach on the land and extract from the land, um, you know, much to the detriment of the, you know, indigenous peoples who have stewarded it throughout generations and to the different communities that have been kind of cultivating and building it up throughout, you know, history. And I think that it's, it's, there's a, it breeds a lot of resentment. So I think that it's, with respect to, you know, not just my work, but the work of many people who kind of consider these relationships, it's important to recognize that, you know, it's, it's not enough to, you know, to lead scholarship, the scholarship and the, the work really needs to play out and directly benefit the people who, who's, who are living in the shadow, um, and whose labor, whose resources, whose time, effort, all of that is going into, what becomes this behemoth of a university. Um, and I think that, you know, most recently, you know, in the past year or two, Yale has increased its voluntary contribution to the city of New Haven. I think that's a great move. I think it's not enough. Um, mm -hmm. We talk about reparation. I think that there has been not enough to repair for the way that Yale has extracted, exploited, and ultimately yeah. harmed people in who have lived in the city of New Haven and been responsible for its growth and benefit over the years. And I think that it's people need to be called, universities need to be called to consider their, their impact harm and the way that they can ultimately benefit their surrounding communities. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're naming names as not just as you write this book, but as you do this broader work. And I think it shows us sh so sharply that, you know, universities are only interested in these communities when they can be made into research objects and when, you know, their representatives can write about them, but not 
in doing the kind of reparative work that can change the conditions we're studying. So that's so important. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, Lastly, Jess, what is next for you? What comes after this book? (laughs) So immediate goal learning medicine. I <laughs> I am in my family medicine residency at Middlesex Health, which is a community hospital in Middletown, Connecticut. And I specifically chose it because I wanted to stay local and I wanted to stay invested in the communities that I've been a part of for the past almost 10 years. And Yale does not have a family medicine program. Um, they Primary care is less of a focus at Yale, particularly family medicine. And Middlesex is a hugely family medicine centered Middlesex County is hugely family medicine centered Middlesex health really puts family medicine at its core. And I am so excited to be able to take care of babies, adults, older adults, and, (laughs) and birthing, birthing people. So that is where I will be for the next four years. And then research wise, I am continuing to tackle the various ways that I see racism playing out in the practice of medicine and the institution and medicine as an institution, the way that white supremacy kind of imbues all of the ways that we think about clinical care and clinical research. And I am also in the process of applying for funding for my next book project, which kind of considers the ways that direct-to-consumer DNA testing shapes people's racial identities, racial politics, and also their notions of kinship. So more to come on that. Well, these all sound really amazing, and I'm so excited to follow what comes thanks as it plays along. But for now, thank you very much, Jess, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much, Aliza. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of Pressing Onward, the Imperative Resilience of Latina Migrant Mothers, published by the University of California Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>